Amen. It has been a week. And things are interesting. We can say that. Um, but at the same time, things are the same. Todd Friel, if you ever get a chance to watch Wretched Radio, Todd Friel, he's uh, I read something on him at one time. He used to be a comedian at one point. Uh, but he has the Wretched Radio, which is a Christian radio show. But if you've ever listened to him any at all, he's uh, sarcastic is kind of just his personality. And it was interesting. He was talking about, you know, a lot of folks say that there is a, um, uh, suddenly I can't remember the word he used, uh, conspiracy. We hear that word a lot, Conspiracy. He said, oh, make sure, there's no doubt about it, there is a conspiracy out there. It's hatched by Satan himself. He's conspiring to try to fool everyone he can into thinking that things are somehow worse now than they've ever been. When the simple fact is, is that the evidence is to the contrary. Last week, we talked about our relationship that we have as Christians with the government. What does God call us to do, and how does He call us to, to live as Christ uh, under authority? And it's a little bit tough sometimes when we look at the Scripture and we realize what God has called us to do, such as love our enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. And when we, when we look not only what Christ said, but we looked as He acted and as He walked upon this earth, He did exactly what He spoke of. And He's calling us to do the same. And I guess what really gets people going is now that maybe things may be looking like they're not going to be as easy maybe in some fronts, as they have been for us in the past. But the church has a history of thriving no matter what the landscape and political culture is. It was really important last week that when we, when we talked about not only Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and followed up that also with Peter, who also said the same things, used almost the same kind of language, that we are to respect those of authority. Peter even went on to say, not just the ones that are good, but also to the ones that are awful. Those ones that act in evilness. That we are to be model citizens. We're not to stir up strife. We're not to cause divisions. If there's anyone who should unite folks, it's people who say they follow Christ. And for whatever reason, it seems that much of the American church has their heart very heavy. My heart is heavy in a sense that I mourn because of the division. I also mourn for those who are captivated and allow themselves to see the world without God at the center. 
Because when I look at what's happening in the world and I look at it without God at the, as the center, I see utter chaos. But when God is at the center, then I see that God has power over everything. And He will use that power as He sees fit. And He allows people to have positions of authority. There's no power anywhere in this world, including Washington, D.C., that, that has not been allowed by God. And He can restrain that power anytime He wants. But He allows free will. He allows people to make bad decisions. Because would it be worship otherwise? Would those who say they love God actually glorify Him if we didn't have a choice to love Him? I mean, sometimes when our little kids want something and they're little, they say, I love you. Like, you ain't got no choice to love me. I'm the one who gives you food and water, right? We like... So we raise our kids and treat them in such a way that when they do have a choice, and they are on their own, that they still love mom and dad. God gave us the choice. It wouldn't be love without the freedom to choose hate. And so last week we, we talked about our Christian duty and how God has called us to live even among those in authority who choose to do evil. But this week we're following up. I, I want us to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I've entitled the message, God's Church Thrives Even in Harsh Conditions. I will not finish this message today. We'll finish it next Sunday. This week we're going to talk about God's plan for the church to thrive. And what is that plan? I'm going to give you four easy things that the church does these four things. And there's, you know, I, I could give you four things, but there's a lot of uh, sub-things underneath of that. But I'm going to give you, we're going to look at the early church, and we're going to look at four things that are listed here in Acts chapter 2 that the church did and thrived. See, the reason that last week was so important because we understand that when Paul and both Peter were writing, both to the Roman church and Peter writing his letter, he, they were writing under a very sadistic, evil leader. Nero was as, as sadistic and as mean and evil as they get. Binding Christians and dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire to light his garden. Can you think of a worse thing? Not only that, there was also, history says that they would also use them in, in the games, with the gladiator games, and use them and, and put them in, you know, in the arena with, with hungry tigers and things like that. Not only were Christians being executed and killed, but they were being killed in the most violent of ways. And yet Paul and Peter both, by the way, who both died at the hands of the government, both of them said to do what? To live as Christ. To love. To be respectful. And the only time we disobey the law is if the law is requiring us to sin against God. We talked about what that looks like. You know, what, what would be that kind of occasion? And we, we talked about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How they were model citizens. Don't forget, they were taken. They were taken from their parents. 
Nebuchadnezzar uh, went in and, and took them captive. And so they were living under captivity and they were model citizens. The only time that they disobeyed the law is when they were required to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And at that point, they said that we will not do that. They still respected him as king, but they refused to bow. But guess what? Nebuchadnezzar's life was affected that day because he saw the power of God at work. You know when it's best to see, easiest to see God's power at work? When our power doesn't. When our power has been stripped away and we are left powerless with no ability to cope, no ability to heal ourselves, no ability to defend ourselves. That's when we see the power of God alive. And people say, I want to see the power of God. Do you? Do we want to see the power of God? Because guess what? To see the power of God, then things are going to have to be beyond our power. Because let's face it, how often do we turn to God when we could take care of it ourselves? And so we want to look at the church, the early church. The early church that's just being formed. We're talking about a, a wonderful day in history when the Holy Spirit arrived, just as Jesus said it would. The day of Pentecost. Penta means 50. 50 days. After they had seen the worst torture of their beautiful Savior and then saw Him arise, saw Him again alive. He was dead and buried. He was dead as dead could get. Then they saw Him alive and guess what? Their hearts were now changed because they now recognize the power of God. And then the Holy Spirit shows up like a mighty Russian wind. And they were hearing the Word of God in their own language. The power that God showed that day and the Holy Spirit arrived and the church was formed. I heard this this week. I was listening to another preacher um, and he said this. He said, the, the mission was not made for the church. The church was made for the mission. God's mission has been the same from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And that was for the redemption of men. And to further the gospel, the good news that God loves them. And we somehow think the, the church is the head of that. No, God is the head. The mission has been there. The church was formed to live out that mission. And so in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 42 through 47, but we're really going to just really concentrate on verse 42 today. We'll get to the rest of those verses next week. So in Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verse 42 through 47. If you would stand to your feet. We will read God's word and then we'll pray. And it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they, re 
they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for your mercy that you show us every day. Lord, for the love that you showed us by coming down here and taking on flesh, allowing yourself to be tortured and crucified, even though although you were perfect, still yet you stood in our place and received the penalty that we deserve. And yet so oftentimes, Lord, I've let you down, and still yet you love me. Still yet, that crimson blood covers me and washes me white as snow. Lord, you are amazing. God, Lord, I just pray today that maybe those who doubt your power or those who have maybe taken their eyes off of you maybe for a moment, Lord, today they will see that this is not a time where we cower or hunker down. But instead, this is a time where we boldly proclaim your name. Not a a political affiliation. But Lord, we proclaim your name. You are our Savior. Lord, we know that we need no other. Lord, maybe for those who are confused or those who, Lord, those who maybe just, maybe just allowed their eyes to wander for a little while and suddenly they see the world and we know that the world is chaotic that men and women are running to and fro, allowing Satan to blind them, allowing him to trick them into thinking that they know a better way. Or they have maybe somehow discovered a way that's that's different and only they are enlightened. Lord, we hear the world today use words like woke as if somehow they have figured something out. Somehow they have seen a different way that they think makes sense to them. But Lord, we know in the end that the only way is your way. So, Father, we pray, Lord, today for those who are disturbed, those who are brokenhearted, those who are walking in fear. Father, we pray today they'll be encouraged. Lord, we love you. We ask you, Lord, to help us, Lord, to speak with a loving heart. Lord, it'll be all about you and not about me at all. Because without you, we can do nothing. And without you, we are nothing. So we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. I, uh, 
I saw the words the other day written. It was the course of the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. It says, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His wonder and grace. Think about that. The world will, go, world will grow strangely dim. That's when God is at the center. The world is strangely dim because we know that the things of this earth do not hold the weight that we allow them to have. They don't hold the influence that will lead to peace and joy. All the world holds are empty promises. Promises of a better way. Promises that if you follow me, you'll have more. You know what you get when you follow man? More of the same. Nothing. It's what we get is nothing. And if there's ever a time that we should walk with a little spring in our step, with a little hitch in our giddy-up, I think about Brother Dave Thomas. So often we'll be talking on Wednesday nights on, on, on our Zoom, and, and more than once, we, we've, you know, when we talk about things that are going on and we know that God holds all of this, but sometimes we all, will allow our voice to maybe have a, I don't know, not so much doubt as it is, we just seem to get down sometimes. And, and Sal and I have had one of those weeks this week where it's just reality of life and the things that we face are just smacking us right in the face. And this week seemed to be the worst of it. I mean, it's just, we know that God holds tomorrow. We know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And we know even the things that we face, even health-wise, may not may a hill of beans. We can be worried to death about sickness and cancer and all these things and go get by a bus tomorrow. And then well, all the worry went where? But we're human. We're not always at 100%. But I remember more than once, Brother Dave says, but we have victory. I think of the old song, victory is mine. Victory is mine. We have victory. And if there's ever a time we need to walk like we have victory, it is now. Yes, they look like they're getting ready to burn Washington to the ground. You know what I say? Let it burn. Why? Because my Savior's not there. My God is everywhere. He doesn't live in a specific house on Pennsylvania Avenue. By the way, I know this for several reasons. One of the reasons is, if it was, he would act different. Yes, I said it. And it'll be the same for the people that come after them. I don't need a Savior. I have one. I don't need somebody to make life better for me. You know why? Because I serve the God who holds my life in His hands. I serve the God that says, you know what? I have the power over death and the grave. And I, just as I arose, will also bring you with me too. Just as Christ arose, so you and I will arise as well. Death has no hold over me. Not only that, I have the promise from God 
that he is able to take care of me. He says, does he not take care of the sparrows in the air? The birds do. He knows that they need something to eat, and he provides that. They're not worried about FICA and taxes and all those things. God provides for them, and he'll do the same for you and I if we will trust him. We have victory. It is absolutely promised us. And we see here, last week we talked about the government. We talked about how rough it was at the time that Paul wrote that we were to obey authority. And so now we look at the, at the church as it is formed, and we see a church that is on fire and growing, it says, daily. Brother Kevin passed me a, 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 it was a short article, I don't know, what I guess we just call it an article or whatever, uh, by Rick Warren. He was talking about how so many people now, especially with COVID, right, we forgot about that, forgot about, right, all this stuff going on in Washington, we, you know, got COVID, Matter of fact, somebody that's very dear to us lost her father yesterday from COVID. I know other folks have lost. A boy I went to school with all my life, I mean from elementary school all the way through high school, known the family well, he lost his father this week to COVID. We got all these things going on. All, these, all, the, all this turmoil. And it's not the first time that it's happened. This is not the first time that a plague has been upon us. It's not the first time that a sickness has run rampant and taken out a lot of people. It's not the first time that a government has gone rogue. It's not the first time for any of that stuff. But as a matter of fact, we see that the condition that Paul and him were living in at the time was, was, was actually much worse than what we have ever had it. But we see the church here, that they, they're growing and added day by day. And Rick Warren was talking about the fact that so many churches are disheartened because of COVID because they can't meet together because all they have is worship. Or what they, at least they call worship. I wouldn't call it true worship because true worship is not about coming together in a sanctuary on Sundays. We should worship God every day with our lives and how we live. When we love our neighbor as ourselves, we worship. When I do good to those who spitefully use me, we worship. When I love those who hate me, we worship. Why? Because I'm reflecting the one who made me. And I'm loving as he said love, which is not normal to the world, but to those who have a mind and heart of Christ. Loving should be our very first nature. And so Rick Warren talked about what their church was doing, and they've seen, was it 16,000 come to Christ in the last eight months? People out here want to know that there's hope. People out here want to know that there's a better way, that we don't have to be scared, and that we don't have to live in this fear of wondering what's going to happen next. You got one group of people that's scared to death because they, they're worried about the economy collapsing and all these other things. Then you got another group that's just happy as a, a punk out of prison because they're going to get their way and they're going to be able to do anything they want to do and wear purple tutus and use whatever bathroom they want to go in. And we're divided. Half are scared and half are too dumb to be scared. Although they're probably quite educated because that's what we do in America. We get educated. And still yet act dumber and dumber as each day goes by. We hold education at an all-time high to the point that we can't even get people to do 
normal everyday jobs because everybody is looking for that, that next million or whatever it is that they're trying to get. I'm thankful for people that do come out of school when they have a drive to do something good for other people other than themselves. And they are far few and in between. Most people are trying to just do for self. We were watching a commercial and it was for the, uh, the reality show for making the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. I know what you're thinking. Uh, does he even, yes, I'm going, I don't like Dallas, by the way. So, but I'm sure y'all have seen the commercial on TV. It's a reality, we're all about reality shows. You know what the funny thing is, is that it's not reality at all, right? You know that. It's all hyped up. It's all calculated and formulated. And when there isn't some kind of uh, conflict, they'll make one. Or they'll do something to create conflict. I know someone who was, uh, they, they had a, a tattoo reality show and, and somebody who, who knew the person who won was actually from Hagerstown. And they were talking to him and they said they would, they would lie to him. They would tell him, oh, we're going to have the day off tomorrow. And they'd take him out on the town and they'd, you know, get in in the wee hours of the morning. And they'd wait till they had one or two hours sleep. And then they'd wake him up and make them, you know, do their art. Just to create conflict, just to create, take them out of their element and, and try to create something that wasn't there. Get people upset with one another. Because you know how it is when, you know, everybody's a diva when they're hungry. Right? I mean, look at the Snickers commercial. Right? You, you, you know, you don't let me have my food, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become an angry diva real quick. And we try to create this. And, but on that, on that commercial, one of the young ladies says this, I, I am ready because I'm going to get mine. And I remember Sal, the first time she heard it, she was like, I'm like, but that's the world today. I'm going to get mine, whether it costs you or not. I don't care if you have to pay for it. I'm getting mine. And that's the world we live in. But it's interesting, though, is we, we expect more out of other people than we do ourselves. Let me give you an example. You could look all over social media all, all day long, and you'll see people, if you don't like this, and you, I am this, and this is the person I voted for, or whatever, and if you don't like this, you can you know, unfriend me, or if I see you even support this, this person or that person, I'm going to unfriend you. We're in the, what they call cancel culture, right? And nobody, nobody's going to give an inch. If you like this person, you can't be my friend. Or if you're this, there's no way you can be a Christian. We hear it all day long, but yet we get angry because we want our, our congressmen and representatives, we want them to go to Washington, and do what? Work out something for the American people. And then we get mad when they vote along party lines and nobody can get nothing done down there. And it's been like that for years. It's broken if you haven't figured it out. We've got a two-party system. It's broken. Everybody's trying, to get the, you know, everybody's trying to get the majority so they can get their agenda done. And heaven forbid that a Republican and Democrat come together and actually figure out something that works out for everybody because there's always middle ground. We want them to go down there and do that, but we can't do it in our own neighborhood. We can't do it here in our everyday lives around the small few hundred people that we know. And I say few hundred because that's how many friends they got on social media. But we all know out of those few hundred, you can't call but one if you got a flat tire. And the only reason you call him is because they owe a towing business. And you'll have to pay for it anyway. 
Isn't that, isn't that the way it is? Everybody wants to cancel each other. If you don't think like me, but we want them to go down there and we tell them, I'm paying you to go down there and we want you to go down there and do what we can't do. But instead of doing it in front of hundreds, we want you to go down there in front of millions and act in a way that we can't do ourselves. And then we get surprised when they go down there and act just like us. How dare them act like us? I'm paying you to act better. Isn't that what we see? That's the world that we live in. And somehow now it's crept into the church. And it ought not be. It's created divisions in the church. The one place we are to be unified. Because nobody down there can do for me what God does for me. Do we have a civic duty? Absolutely. But here's what we do. You do your civic duty and you leave it at that. Do your vote. Do your homework. Look at the issues. Vote. But after you vote, how about shut your mouth and do something? Instead of running your pie hole, how about we actually go feed some people? How about we clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit the imprisoned, take care of the widows? How about we do those things? Because that's what Jesus said we were to do, to love one another. And put your interest above my own. But instead, it's as if the church has been stalled. Not saying heritage. I'm talking about the American church. So if there's ever a time, if there's ever a time that we need to have spring in our step and walk in complete, listen to this, completely committed to Christ, but also with complete assurance that we have victory. We have to be 100% with zero doubt. Why? Because we can trust the scriptures. And we know that we have victory. So we need to walk like we're victorious. We need to walk like, I'm, you know what? It, it not only walk like we don't care, but we actually need to not worry. The Bible says we can't, we can't add one thing with worry. Now, I believe we need to be activists for those who don't have a voice. We talked about that last week. We need to raise our voice for the issues. And there are issues. There are people that, that need to be spoken for. I was watching a video. I passed one of them on to, uh, to Brother Kevin. It's um, got him Jordan Peterson. He doesn't really claim to be Christian, but he's, a, he's scientific. If you've ever met someone who talks very matter-of-factly, like emotion's really not there, the only time you even see any emotion is when he's agitated. But he was, uh, it, it was a, an interview actually over, I, I want to say in Sweden or something like that. And they talked about marriage. They said, well, you're, you advocate for the government not allowing people to divorce. He said, that's not what I said. He said, that's, that's not what it was. But he says, but I am against divorce. He said, because it oftentimes creates more hell in your life than you already had. But we had this delusion because it's accepted now in society. We had this delusion that things are going to be better. When the simple fact is, is you're still going to have to deal with that person, especially if you have children. 
They're like, well, how, how dare you want somebody to live in a, in, a, in, a, in a loveless marriage? He said, what about the children? He said, I'm speaking up for the children because it's a proven fact that children from broken homes suffer greatly. I thought, wow, isn't that great for somebody to speak up for those who can't speak up? And that's what he said. Who's talking for the children? Who's speaking up for them? It's our job to do these things. It was also interesting that he made this comment. And I want you to think about it because as we look at the early church, as we look at this church that's living under this tyrannical, this tyrannical government, there was a feminist that was on the show, and this feminist was advocating for us to teach boys it's okay to play with dolls, and what, I don't know what you think G.I. Joe is, but anyway, it's, you know, it's okay for boys to play with dolls. It, it'd be okay to teach the, you know, the, you know, basically to wipe out gender. He says science doesn't support you. Your ideology, he said it's dangerous to teach an ideology that is proven to not work and is proven to be false and a lie. And she was like, oh, oh. I mean, the smirk on her face was like. So I said, look at that smirk on her face. I know, I said, I know she ran out of education. This guy trumped her own education. I don't think I could use that word anymore, though. I don't know if I'm supposed to use that. Anyway, this guy, he, she, she, she definitely ran out of education and, and common sense before she even got into this argument with this guy. He says, science is proving you wrong. And they said, well, I mean, uh, you know, how can you? He said, there are absolute studies. And this is what he come to the conclusion he come to. And this is kind of important. He said this, and we need to keep this in mind. We live today under the least tyrannical government that has ever existed. We have more freedoms today in society than ever before us. We live in a land where we can do anything we want, pretty much. As long as you don't take lives and, you know, take a life or kill someone or do something like that. But think about it. You, you can pretty much do what you want. You can run around and, and with, a, with a rainbow wig and, and a tutu, and, and it's okay. You can do it. You're free to do those things. The laws that we have give us the freedom to do these things. He said, but you know what's interesting? Is in living in a time that has the least tyrannical government, because they were trying to basically say that, you know, because the government, you know, because there's a lot of men in, uh, in these, you know, high positions and all this stuff that somehow, you know, that is now equals this tyrannical, you know, or empirical kind of thing. He said, we live in a time where we have the most freedoms that we've ever had. And you know what it has proven? He said, and there are several studies. I can point you to three in the last couple of years. And one was in the last few months. He could point you to studies that show that even with all the freedoms that we have, guess what? Women choose to be women and men choose to be men. Women still take jobs that are more natural for them and men take jobs that are more natural for them. He said it doesn't mean a woman can't be a plumber if she, does, if she wants to be a plumber. Our law, you can absolutely be a plumber and there's nothing wrong with that if a woman wants to be a plumber, but that's not what most choose because women typically are nurturing and they're about relationships, and they're going, to, they're going to, to take jobs that fit that nature. And men, we like to create things and engineer things, and we're typically going to take jobs that meet that nature. And so here we live with more freedom than we've ever had, and guess what? People are acting just like God made them. But we want to be forced. Some people want to force us into this 
this other style of living that somehow we have done our boys wrong if we teach them to be men and we've somehow done our girls wrong if we teach them to be young ladies. Like somehow we've messed them up. Instead, he want to neutralize everything. Now, are there probably some folks that are still tyrants in their roles they have in leadership and, and are maybe the majority of them men? Maybe so. But we live in a time of freedom like we've never had before. And yet the church is falling on itself, failing. The American church is failing. Why? Because it's dying. The church is not growing in our country. But in other countries where it is illegal and you could lose your life for worshiping Jesus Christ, there the church is growing. And it is not only growing, but it is thriving. And why? Well, we see here in the scriptures, and that's what we want to get to. Let's look at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here are four things that the church was doing that helped them thrive, even in a society where being a Christian could cost them their life. Many Christians, many Christians were tortured and lost their life for standing for Christ. Yet the church is thriving. So how can we today have our faces all long and mourning as if somehow what's happening in society is going to somehow take away from God's ability to empower His church to do His mission? Matter of fact, it's really the opposite, isn't it? Now that people want hope more than ever, now that people are scared and they're worried, now is the time to tell them about Jesus Christ. There's never been a time in our lifetime like there is now where we can promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell them that there's a better way and that we have victory and I don't need to live as if things are falling apart. Why? Because my God is still on the throne. He is still all-powerful and all-knowledgeable and He has it all in His hands and I can trust Him. I can trust him. So today's not a day where we walk and drag our feet and hold our head low. Instead, today's a day where we hold our head high, not from selfish pride, but from the fact that I know today that he holds my life in his hand, that I can trust him. And when my life here is done, whether it goes by natural causes or someone takes my life from me because I stand for Christ, either way, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul said to live is Christ. And that means sacrifice, by the way. When we think to live is Christ, we're like, you know, like it's some kind of, I don't know, like there's going to be angels floating around and to live is Christ and, and be like, oh, no, to live is Christ and Christ suffered and we will suffer too for his name. He said they hated me and they're going to do what? They'll hate you for it. And so we need to speak out on the issues. That's why I don't, I don't back a horse. I stand up for what God said is right. There's a huge difference. I don't need a political party to get behind. I have the scriptures. And I need to speak out on the issues according to what the scripture says. 
One of the things also in that article that was, that was also very true is that most Christians do not have a biblical worldview. They have a political worldview. It's time to get out of politics and get into the Word. And that will change lives. And so we see here four things that the church is doing. Now these are not the only four things, but these are four important things that we see here that is attributed to the church that is thriving. How do we know it's thriving? Because they saw wonders done. And in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Right now the American church is falling. The numbers are falling. They're decreasing. The early church, even under political unrest. By the way, you want to talk about insurrection? There was a lot of them going on around there. Matter of fact, Barabbas, Barabbas, a known thief and thug, was most likely a part of a group of zealots based on what we know from history. And I heard Chuck Swindoll speak on it one time, and, and I haven't done the study he's done, but just based on, you know, he's very, uh, a very good theologian, and I, I trust his research that Barabbas was likely a part of those zealots who, who had been pretty much fighting for money. Whoever would pay him, they would go rough him up. But not only that, they were, they were also insurrectionists against the government, not wanting to pay the tax to the Roman government. And so they were fighting back and making things worse for those who were trying to live peaceably. And it was him that they chose over Jesus. And you know what's interesting? I, 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 wrote, I wrote this line in my notes. And I don't know that it's necessarily right or I wrote it correctly, but I wrote this. Christians whose outlook on life as good or bad based on power and government are likely to commit the same egregious error as the Jews who had Jesus crucified. What do I mean by that? They wanted a political savior. An almighty, eternal savior was standing right there with them. And you know what? They turned their back on him because he did not deliver. He did not deliver a political promise they were looking for. They were looking for a political savior that would put them back on top and over the Roman government instead of living under the authority of the Roman government. The eternal, almighty God come down and robed in flesh. The Messiah that they had been waiting for shows up. And they choose Barabbas over Jesus. Why? Maybe they thought at least Barabbas might fight for their cause. Maybe they were so discontent with Jesus because Jesus did not deliver the answer they were looking for. And maybe, maybe there are some today that are walking on that edge right now. Almost thinking that somehow God has failed because a particular person won't be in the White House. 
as if God doesn't have the power to put who there who he wants. As if they think they know what the future holds. As if they know better about what they need than God does. Because God's movement in our life is not always about making things easy for us. It's about allowing us to be at a place where we will solely rely on Him and listen to His Word and trust Him. And sometimes the only way we can get to that place that we need to be in Christ is to be brought to our knees. Yeah, that's, that's not in Joel Osteen's book. That's not in the Have Your Best Life Now book. Why? Because it's not about our best life now. It's about living as Christ and dying as gain. You know, I I don't think Mary would be mad at me for telling something that we had just talked about. I don't think she'd be upset with me. But we miss, everybody misses Dave. Nobody misses Dave as much as Mary. But we all miss him. We're talking about all pain has a purpose. And sometimes we look at it as if almost sometimes God has taken someone, you know, did I, it's almost that I do, that I, did I do something wrong. Now, Mary didn't say that, but we were just talking in general. Because a lot of times you talk to people who's lost someone and they'll be upset with God. Why did God do this to me? But for somebody who knows Christ, it wasn't because Mary did anything wrong at all. It's because God had promised Dave. He promised Dave that if you live for me, Dave, one day at the right moment, at the right time, I'll take you home and you'll never hurt again. Why can't it be about Dave's victory instead of our pain? Why can't it be about my mother's victory? Years that she lived, she was 82 pounds when she died. She was nothing more than a skeleton with some skin on it, and she was so sick. And I held her hand laying in my bed and watched the the light in her eyes go out. You ever seen that? And my heart just hit the floor. God, why did you have to do that now? But if I really cared for my mom, maybe the better question is, God, why'd you wait so long? Why'd you just take her on earlier because she loved you? But he had a purpose for her pain, too. Sometimes we're asking the wrong questions. Sometimes we're looking at it the wrong way. Oh, we hurt. And no one hurts like Dave's family does. But we hurt. I walk around this place, I see him everywhere. I don't even want to go into storage room because, listen, I know this sounds the goofiest thing ever, but Dave and a mop was just normal. That man loved a mop more than any man should. 
they say men doing that kind of work is hot to women, then Dave must have been hot, hot. Because he mopped, he vacuumed, he washed dishes, he did all kinds. Even when we were over at their house, we'd be talking. If I want to talk to Dave, Dave be in there doing this. Oh, man, Dave, now I feel like I almost got to help or something. You want me to drive? It's just, it was his nature. And I see him everywhere. But the question shouldn't be, God, why did you have to take him? Maybe it's this, God, I'm glad he's with you. I'm glad I have the hope of knowing that I'll see him again. Because he lived in you. And you know what? You were faithful to your promise to him. Because you said one day when he gave his heart to you, Dave, one day. One day I'll take you home with me. Because John 14 says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place that where I may be, that you may be also, and you know the way. And Dave knew the way. My mother knew the way. Billy knew the way. And when it was the right time, God completed his promise. But it's hard not to be selfish sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes it's like, God, why, did I, you know, why do I got to walk in this pain? But I know the real thing is this. God held his end of the deal. He made a covenant with us through the blood of his dear son, Jesus. And God is not slack according to his promise, as men count slackness. But he is long-suffering not willing that any should perish. When he says he'll do something, he'll do it. And I have no doubt that our loved ones who knew Christ, like my mom, like Dave, like Brother Billy Pfeiffer, they are there, they are 100% whole. Billy, Billy walking, running, got all of his, got all of his limbs. My mother, perfect health. God was faithful to his promise, and I'm glad. I am thankful that God is faithful to his promise because it makes me see things differently. When God is at the center, the world will grow strangely dim because the world is centered on itself. Instead of being thankful for someone else winning the race, we'll be upset that we're still running. That's the way the world acts. So the world doesn't know how to take Christians when we say, yes, we hurt, but I'm thankful. They don't know how to take that. It's foreign. It makes no sense. And here we see a church that is growing in the midst of a worse political landscape than we'll probably ever see in our lifetime. Yes, things can get bad. Things are going to get bad. But it's not going to stop the church from thriving. So let me share these four easy things with you. I'll be, I'll be quick. First off, it says this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now think about that. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now realize, don't, don't forget, the New Testament is literally in process. It's being written. But we do know that they had the early 
books such as Mark probably being the first one. The, the, the first Testament that had, or the, the first book of the New Testament that had really that had come out. Most likely it was Mark. And he wrote of the life of Christ and, and what had been seen and what they knew of Christ. But not only that, not only that, you gotta remember there are still people that the apostles, Peter and John and them, they, they're still alive. And they're teaching all that they had learned from Christ. And the church thrived. Why? Because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means not only a commitment to learning it, but a commitment to doing it. It was not just about listening to what the words were, but it was about hiding those words in their heart that they might not sin against God. It was about doing the teachings, not just, not just learning what the words were, not just learning the lines, if you will, or memorizing some lines on a page, but it was about devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, They're both taking it in and then living it out. Believers were taught the basic tenets of the faith, as well as details from Christ's teaching and His life as He walked with His disciples. They also used a creed to instill doctrine in believers' hearts and minds. The first, the earliest one we see in the Scriptures is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Some people refer to it as the Pauline Creed or early creed. We also see that the, uh, I'm trying to think of the guys, that Rich Mullins. If you've ever uh, heard of Rich Mullins, by the way, there's a, great mo- there's a great movie out called The Ragamuffin. It was about the life of Rich Mullins. Rich, he had struggles in his life, but he loved the Lord. Rich Mullins was a contemporary Christian artist, uh, and singer, and songwriter. Um, back in the early days when you saw Amy Grant just start to come on the scene, Rich Mullins was in that time period. And he wrote a song called Creed. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ's only begotten Son, our Lord. He believed in a virgin birth, that Christ was born of a virgin Mary. Believed in a resurrection and believed in a life that will never end. That was part of the early church creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea. But we see Paul here teaching a creed. A a creed was, uh, well, a creed is a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions. And, And even though we see it written kind of a certain way because it's been translated into English, not everything translates as well. But Paul was using the kind of language they said. He was using the Greek equivalent of the old Hebrew of way that they would learn lines. Right? So that's how they would learn the law. And so he, he would have spoke this in a way that would have helped them kind of commit it to memory. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, but the creed is most likely verse 3 through verse 8. They say 8 may have been... Uh, you know, eight may have not been in the original creed, but when he was writing the letter to the Corinthians, he put that in there for maybe uh, clarification or for his own personal testimony. Either way, it doesn't change the meaning of it. But I want you to think about this. It says, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And this is where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It was the giving and receiving. That's how they passed down oral tradition. This was something that Paul would have been keenly aware of and also a lot, all the other Jews. They, would, they, they, were, they understood this. This is how it was passed down. 
They had this oral tradition. Just like Jews today, Orthodox Jews, still recite the Shema every morning and every night. It says, For I delivered to you the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. By the way, in accordance with the Scriptures, you said the New Testament's actually kind of being written as a... Yes, but don't forget the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Christ too. And Paul would use the Old Testament. Jesus read from the Old Testament and quoted from that. The Old Testament gives us an accurate picture of what Jesus, who He was. Matter of fact, you can't understand the Jesus in the New Testament without looking at the Old Testament. So Paul's saying that I'm delivered to you what was delivered unto me. That Jesus died according with the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. And so Paul's using that in this creed to help solidify in their minds so that there is no doubt and so that they know. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all who are, all are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Then He goes on to say, after the creed, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be a called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's now going into his personal testimony, said, here's the creed, here's what I believe. That Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that now he is alive. Not only do I, I know he's alive, not only because it's been told, but because people who were there, eyewitnesses, Many, he appeared to 500 at one time, many who are still alive. You know what he was saying? He said, listen, if you don't believe me, go talk to some of these brothers that was there. They saw it. And then he said, into one untimely born. In other words, he didn't walk with Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. But Jesus appeared to Paul. For I'm the least of the apostles. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the way, Rich Mullins uses that in his, uh, in his song called Creed. And I believe what I believe. It's what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me not the invention of any man. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not. But the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He said, this is what you've been taught. This is the apostles' teaching. That Jesus Christ fulfilled the scriptures exactly as they were written. And that he was crucified for their sin just as the Old Testament said he would. And he was buried. He was absolutely dead. And then he arose alive and hundreds and hundreds saw him with their own eyes. And then I myself also saw him because he appeared unto me. This is what they believed. And if we believe that, if I didn't tell you anything else, if that's all that you knew, it's enough. Is it not? If that's all I told you is that the Savior that the world had been waiting for, came, died just like the Scripture said He would, gave His life a ransom for you and I. 
that he was dead and buried, but then he arose again and he's alive forevermore. And if the scripture is not enough for you, I can, I can cite several other historical documents outside of the scripture that speak of the very same Jesus has reported, has been seen alive. He's alive. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that is the creed, which is just, if you will, the basics. If you memorize this, you can share the gospel. But listen, they taught about the love of Christ. They taught about the atoning work of Christ on the cross. They talked about the power of his resurrection and his call for sinners to come unto himself and that they can be reconciled to God through his sacrifice and be victorious over sin and the grave. We have victory. The apostles' teachings has not changed. It's the same gospel that will save you and I as it did 2,000 years ago. The same teaching. The church will thrive if we devote ourselves to the teaching of God's Word. But by the way, the teaching of God's Word, that's not a one-hour Sunday ordeal. It's not a take in this one the preacher said. But devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is about an everyday intake of God's Word. Being fed every day with the bread of God's Word and being filled with it. And not only being filled with it, but then living it. You, you eat something for energy, and then you burn that energy to operate. The same way works with the Scriptures. We take the Scriptures in, and then we allow that to be how we operate living out those very scriptures that we've learned. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. And secondly, to fellowship. Paul wrote to the Hebrew church, or to the Hebrews, well, we attribute the book to Paul's. Not, we're not 100% sure that Paul wrote it, but it sure sounds like him. But the writer of Hebrews, I should say, says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what we're going to see next week when you kind of, we're looking at verse 42, but when you look at the rest of those verses, them coming together was not just on the Sabbath, which they considered the first day of the week now, which is Sunday, because that's when Jesus arose. But it was an everyday thing. We need fellowship. People who say that they can be a Christian and live as a Christian without fellowship and without the church are blinding that they're blind. They simply are ignoring the scriptures. And they wonder why they're not thriving. I wonder why. Because your life is so focused on, on self that you think you can live this life without God's direction and living the way He designed it. That's like thinking, thinking that you're just all that in a bag of ooh, that you can go out here on a football field and not need the other players. All I need is me. Or like going to a baseball game and thinking that, you know what, I only need me, I'll pitch. And I'm so good at pitching, they'll never hit it and I won't need nobody else. People who say that they could live in Christ and not do what Christ taught. Think, how clouded is that? People get discontent with the church too, right? Church is full of hypocrites. I know, it's great, isn't it? 
I mean, isn't it? You don't say, I ain't going to the hospital because you're sick people. Right? Or you're sick, you don't, I'm not going to the doctor. There's sick people up at the doctors. I know. That's where sick people belong. And guess where hypocrites belong? In God's house. I hope that I'm not as big a hypocrite today as I once was. I try to live closer to the cross every day. But we all struggle with something. You, you follow me around long enough and you will see me do something that is not Christ-like. You'll be like, oh, he's a hypocrite. He said he followed Christ. I saw him do something Christ-like. You ain't got to follow me long. Just follow me today. If you want to get a good shot at one, follow Sal for five minutes. I love you, sweetheart. She got her hair did this week. Don't it look good? I love you. I'll pay for that one, folks. But we've gotten to the American church now where it's just, you know, once a week thing. The early church was thriving not only because they took in the they devoted themselves to the teaching of God's Word. But they devoted themselves to fellowship. It wasn't just about church time. It was about, I'm going to surround my life with other believers, and we're going to take in God's Word on a daily basis, and we're going to take in fellowship as often as we can. It says even going from house to house and breaking bread. Listen, it wasn't just about the church house. But they filled one another's houses. Why? Why? Because life is better with other Christians in your life. And you know what's weird is sometimes as a pastor, we'll go to visit people just kind of because we want to bless them and turn around and be the one being blessed. Because that's the way God does things. We need fellowship. We need each other. Why? Because all through the New Testament scriptures, we see being taught by not only Paul, but also Peter and other writers and Timothy, by us encouraging one another, exhorting one another. There's going to be days where you're up and I'm down and I'm going to need your up. And then there's going to be days where you're down and I'm up and you're going to need my up. And we see the scriptures and it says that we are actually made to be one body. And not one person can be all the parts of one body. It's also interesting, though, that it seems to what, what keeps people out of church or what can keep people out of church from time to time. Now, I'm not talking about COVID. We, our church is bigger than just a meeting here. Thankful. I'm thankful for that. We have a lot of people that love the Lord. But I'm talking about truly understanding the, how we need to thrive. Because we all can do better. I think our church is better, a lot better off than many churches today. But we can all do better. But let's face it. Does it take the same amount of headache to keep you out of church on Sunday than it does to keep you from work on Monday? How is it that we'll run ourselves ragged six days a week? And I'm not going to be at church this, this Sunday, Pastor. I'm just, I'm just wore out. I just need a day. Okay, so you, you, you wasted your time, and now you want to take up God's and not be in his house. And you want to neglect the meeting together as some had done. 
How do you think that's going to be when we stand before God? And Well, God, you know that I had a hard time getting there sometimes. You know that. You know what I find? I find that my pain isn't as painful when I'm around other people who love the Lord and when I'm busy doing something. If I just sit around and think about how bad I hurt, I hurt worse. Anybody ever been there? Right? That's, if there's anything that I've learned through some of the health things that I've been going through, it's that. I'm going to hurt every day regardless. The busier I keep myself, the less I think about it. Not only that, have you ever been really sick and drug yourself to church and then got there and felt so much better? Yeah. So why is it that sometimes we let things... Now listen, I'm not saying that sometimes we're not deathly ill. And by the way, if you've got a call for something like that going on, I want you to stay home. We don't, need no, we don't need no COVID spread up in here. Quarantine is in the Old Testament too, by the way. When they were living under God's government... They had quarantine back then, too. I did a podcast on that. You can go listen to it. But let's look at what Ephesians says. Ephesians says in chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, And he gave apostles, prophets, and evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craft, craftiness and in, and in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Think about that. You can't be the head, hand, feet, arms, and everything. Maybe Sal's a hand. Maybe I'm an arm. Maybe Kevin's a, a foot and Renee's a leg. Mary's definitely going to be the brain of the outfit, right? She's going she's to try to convince us that she is. The whole body joined together. By the way, not everybody, not everybody's fit to teach. Not everybody's fit to preach. Maybe that's not your gift. It's not your talent. Right? By the way, let me just throw this in. Can't be a good leader if you ain't a good follower. You read any leadership book you want out there, and you'll learn that, that principle. You've got to be a good follower to be a good leader. By the way, let me tell you something else about leadership that you need to watch out for with a keen eye. True leaders, true leaders give credit for anything good to the people they lead. And good leaders will take credit for the bad on themselves. We see the opposite in today's society a lot of ways. The leaders take credit for the good, and they want to throw everybody else under the bus for the bad. That, my friends, is not true leadership. And it's certainly not the style of leadership that God approves. You can file that wherever you want it. But put it in your bank because it's true. I have spent most of my adult years in leadership and in management. I was a manager from an early age, not because I was good, it just I was at the right place at the right time. God has blessed me way beyond my ability years ago. 
And honestly, I, I do got to tell you this. If it wasn't for my wife today, I'd probably be still banging sheet metal or wrenching on units. I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now because I will tell you what my wife did for me. She made it okay for me to fail. Now, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but you need to know it. My wife made it okay to fail. What I mean by this was this. I was offered a position. I was young. I was 20, maybe 20, 21 years old, and I was offered a management position. I'm like, I don't know. I'm young. Will they listen to me? I mean, what if I, what if I, what if I mess up? What if I fail? She said, what's the worst thing that could happen? You lose your job? You went there looking for one. We'll look for another one. Don't, take an, don't not take an opportunity because you're scared of failing. Take the opportunity and do your best. And just know that you do your best. And if you do your best and your best isn't good enough for them, it's okay. But don't go there and not do your best. And let me tell you, I'm the better for it. Because my wife made it okay for me to fail. And ever since then, ever, ever since that first time she did that, every time after that, I'd be offered another position. Man, honey, I don't know if I can do that. Sure you can. But if you can't, we'll find somewhere else. If God opens a door, walk through the door. Now, I'm not going to tell you I took every job and every position. There's things we prayed about, and sometimes if something's too good to be true, sometimes it's too good to be true. But let me tell you, today, the pastor I am today, because I love her. I love you, but I love her more. And my wife gives me the okay to fail. So some of the things we launch out and we do here, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person like everybody else. Don't think I don't, you know, you put yourself out there, it's a vulnerable position. But if all of you all today say that I'm not the leader for you because I launched us out into something and it didn't go right, at the end of the day, as long as she, she still calls me honey, and tells me she loves me, I can live with it. So I don't think I'm a very good pastor, but if I, if I have any good qualities as a pastor, I have those qualities because I have someone who loves me, who prays for me, who encourages me, and we do that for each other. But as the body of Christ, we're also supposed to do that for each other, not on the same scale. Because you'll never know me like my wife knows me. But on a smaller scale, we're to do that for each other. Because I should feel the same about you. You know what? You feel that God's calling you out to start a, 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 a small group or, or something like that? I should be the one there. We should be championing each other. You feel God leading you to do something? We should be behind each other. Do it. If God's leading you, and it may be only be for one. The thing is, we also gauge success incorrectly. One, uh, was it one consultant talked about church consultants and said all they're worried about is budgets, buildings, and butts in the seat. And if they got those three things going for them, they think they're successful. Now, the church here grew day by day. And listen, we need to be growing. But we just need to do what's in front of us that God has given us to do and trust him for the rest. But I can tell you this, we're not going to grow in a way that pleases God unless we do it his way. We might get more butts in the seat. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
that were pleasing to God. Devoting to God's word, fellowship, communion. The breaking of the bread here. I've read so many commentaries on this and I keep coming back to communion. We see later on that they go from house to house breaking bread and they're talking about dinner there. But I believe this is specifically talking about breaking of bread in remembrance of Christ so that we're keenly aware of the cost of our salvation. You see, we see that Jesus told his disciples, well, let's read it in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. It says, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Well, first off, boy, that's got a great way to open up dinner, isn't it? Guys, I'm so glad y'all here today. I wanted to have this dinner with you uh, before I suffer. Well, that had to take the mood down a little bit. It says, for I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. And then we go to 1 Corinthians 11, which is what I typically read when we're doing communion here. And by the way, I feel convicted. I'm going to confess in just a minute after I read this. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't know about you, but I carry... Right now, I don't carry it with me because I almost lost it at an airport. My mom, she loved being a lady, but she also liked to tinker and work on stuff. My mother, if you give her a, a butter knife, y'all know what a butter knife is, right? Case knife is also what my mother called it, a case knife. I has no idea what that means. Son, go get me a case knife. I don't know. It was a butter knife. So I learned later. Sal taught me what all the forks and stuff were. All right. You give her a case knife and some pliers, and she'd work on anything. People would bring VCRs. Y'all remember those things, VCRs? People would bring VCRs to our house for my mom to work on, and she'd fix them. She'd send me and Dad to the town. Hey, while you're going to town, me and Dad be going to town for something. Hey, while you're in town, can you stop at, uh, I forget, his, was it Hoover? That wasn't Hoover. That was a vacuum cleaner. There was a guy that had electronics and work. What was it? Uh, it was an old guy on, back where Garrison's Barbershop was. He was on the opposite side up at the end of the street, right up here near that one-way one -way street. Anyway, I'm giving Mary directions in case she wants to go there. I don't think he's there anymore. But there was this old guy there that had, like, worked on Zenith television. Remember Zenith? 
right? And, all the, and he also sold them vacuum tubes and all the stuff that go into My mom would figure out which one was bad and she'd pull it out and tell my dad, you go to him and tell him you want one of these. He's, my dad says, this is embarrassing. I got to go in and buy some, my wife stuff to work on, you know? It was, we always got a big joke out of it. I watched my mom get shocked by a vacuum tube one time. That was hilarious. But I got in trouble for laughing, all right? So later on in years, my dad ended up buying my mother a little toolbox. She had tools. Because my mother had tools in every drawer in the kitchen. There was tools everywhere. And she had this little blue knife. But you buy those blades like a retractable knife. You buy the blades and you put in this thing. And you can take the blade out. And I was at an airport. And they caught that in my backpack. I didn't really think about it. It had been in there. I always carried it with me. And they pulled that out of my backpack, and he was going to take my knife. And I said, you don't understand. Take the blade out. The blade comes out. Let me, would you please take the blade out and give me the knife back? I, I, I'm telling you, I, if you don't let me have that knife, I've got to go back to the car. I, I can't. I'm, I'm not leaving it here. And the lady looked at me like, it's just a knife. No, you don't understand. That knife belonged to Julia Lorraine Hoffmaster, my mom. Better off when y'all not around. She was my mommy. And I love her. And I still love her. And you see, she's in heaven, and one day I'm going to see her again. Now, I know I can't take that knife to heaven with me, but I'll keep it with me until I get there. Because every time I see that blue knife, it's in a drawer up in a nightstand beside my bed. And the other day I was looking for something, and I pulled there's my knife. And every time I see it, it reminds me of the love that my mother had for me. And so my confession is this. We don't do communion often enough. I've been to churches where they do it every Sunday, and to me it just became routine. And I always said, if I become a pastor, I'm not going to do it like that. But I believe the early church did it often. They never neglected to do it. Why? Because Jesus meant something to them. Because as often as we do it, we remember. We remember our Savior. We remember the sacrifice that he made. You know, when we look at that cross, when you look at a cross, it, there's something that's missing off the cross and of any cross that you get. It's kind of been whitewashed because the cross Jesus hung on was stained with his blood. I heard a, I heard a youth pastor one time. Their kids were kind of getting kind of rowdy. They were t all teenagers. It was one of the times we had the night here. and He said, listen, I, I want to tell you all about a friend of mine who died. He said, and it hurts my heart to know how he died. Because it was, it was just so painful. And everybody was silent, just like the few we have in here are. He started talking about his friend, and I knew where he was going with this. He's like, but you know what? When I'm talking about my friend, I'd rather you not be moving around laughing or anything, because... This is serious. Have you ever had a friend die? Have you ever had somebody you love die? 
And he started telling about the death of Jesus. And at the end, he says, well, there's one beautiful thing about this is he's alive now. But he's not here. He's gone away, but he left the Holy Spirit to lead us so that one day I'll be with him again. Jesus says, as often as you do this, remember me. Maybe the church needs to get back to remembering a little bit better because sometimes I think we forget the pain that Jesus felt as a result of my sin. My sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on upon his back. And with his wounds, we are healed. That was the words of Isaiah foretelling the suffering of Jesus. And why? It was for me. And it was for you. If we're going to thrive, we have to thrive in remembrance and remembering every day the cost of our salvation. Yet we go on sinning instead without a thought. Because that's what a lot of American churches are teaching today. Oh, it doesn't matter. Listen, my sin cost him dearly. So I don't want to go out here and just sin freely as if it didn't cost something. I don't want to remember that every time that I break one of God's holy laws, it's like laying a stripe across his back. And I don't want to lay any more stripes than I have to. The church will thrive when we start getting back to living a holy life. He said for us to be holy because he is holy. And I think the best way to do that, the best way to keep us on track, is to remember what it cost. And lastly, he said this. They continued in their prayers. Now, they said in the prayers. If you actually look at the English Standard Version, it says the prayers. In the King James Version, it says just prayers. But the real translation in the Greek was the prayers. Now, we don't know exactly if there was specific prayers, but we know that the disciples would have taught. The apostles would have taught them to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Prayer is communion with God. And I know that I'm getting long in the tooth, but listen, this is probably the most important part, and I probably shouldn't have told stories earlier. If you want to know God, commune with Him. And how do you commune with Him? Prayer. But I think we spend more time asking God to change circumstances than we do asking Him to change us. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, this is how he told him to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the very beginning of Jesus teaching them how to pray was about them understanding the position of God. He is the ultimate authority. He is the creator of heaven and earth. It is his will that matters. But yet we go to prayer all the time trying to get God to do what? Change his will. Jesus taught us something when he prayed in the garden. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. 
And if we have that attitude of prayer, God, you are the center of everything. It is your will that matters. I don't want to have to experience this hardship. But your will is of the utmost importance. And I know that your will is going to be done whether I want it done or not. I know that your will is going to be done. So God, if you can let this cup pass for me, let it pass. But if this is the way it has to be, Lord, give me the strength. <clears throat> give me the boldness. Give me the strength that I need. Because I don't want to be against your will. I do not want to walk in any way opposing your will. Health and wealth teachers tell you, oh, you got to tell, you tell him what you want. He's got to do it. No, it's not how it works. And that's why the church is failing. Because people believe that. They buy into that. Why? Because it puts them back at the center. It puts them where they're telling God what to do. And God is not going to be commanded by me, you, or anybody else. But prayer can be a powerful thing. Well, it says that, you know, if you say mountain, be moved if you have enough faith. Yes. But do you realize sometimes you're the mountain? Sometimes I'm the mountain that needs to be moved. Not the circumstance. It is me. The circumstance is there for my good, even though it may taste bad. It's there for my good. Sometimes I'm the mountain that needs to be moved. And so I, I want to leave you with this prayer that was from the early church. We're in Acts chapter 2. All we got to do is go two chapters on down the road in chapter 4. I want you to think about what this is like the, this is the coolest prayer. Well, it's not the coolest. I mean, all prayers are good in their Bible, but this is one of the ones that captures me. Because this gives you an idea. And I think this, if, we, if, we, if you read into this prayer what God wants us to see through it, and you'll see how fitting it is for today. In Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported the chief priests and elders what had said to them. This is John and Peter. Remember, they'd been, they'd been brought in to be questioned. And the Sanhedrin, right, the Roman, the Jewish rulers, I thought we told you not to go more and teach that stuff no more. Right? So they were being called across the carpet for their teaching. But they were proclaiming Christ boldly. And they got slammed for it. And so when they finally were released, they go back and told their friends, you know, what, it, what, it, what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And then verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lift their voices together to God and said, this is where the prayer starts. Sovereign Lord, Boy, I, we could preach all day on just sovereign Lord. Sovereign. He's sovereign. He answers to no one. His will is perfect. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were in Jerusalem, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod 
and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you hear what they just said? Lord, we know that even the suffering of your servant Jesus was all a part of your plan. And that even Pilate and Herod were put there for this purpose. Now, you think God doesn't know how to move Washington if he wants somebody to move in or out? The church is praying, not God, please fix this, not God. Look at what they're saying. They're saying, we know that this is a part of your holy plan. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Now, they're not going to ask the threat to be taken away. Look what they ask for. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't ask for God to change the circumstance. God, change us. Grant to your servants that we be more bold. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They said, God, they're threatening us. We don't want to fall to the threat. Give us the strength so that we can speak with all boldness. It wasn't change the circumstance, get them out of there, do something else so that we can have it easy. It wasn't that at all. Because they knew that God is sovereign. There was a purpose for this. It was instead strengthen us so that I won't buckle under pressure. Isn't that what the church ought to pray today? God strengthen us so I don't buckle under pressure. The pressure is going to be there. It's going to happen. It's a part of the plan. Have you not read the rest of the Bible? It gets rough. And it's going to get more and more rough. And let's face it, half of what we're worried about is really, bottom line comes down to half of it, we're worried about our pocketbook. They're going to destroy the economy. Let them destroy it. It ain't going to be the first time. Has God not carried his people through worse than this? He fed Israel in a desert where there was nothing. Shouldn't our prayers to church, God, give us strength so that we won't buckle? Lord, it's going to get bad, but it's the perfect time for your power to be shown because we're going to need it because our power is not going to be enough. Then look what happened. And then when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. They devoted themselves to the teaching of God's word. They devoted themselves to fellowship because we need each other. They devoted themselves to continually remember Jesus and his power. Because when I remember his death, I remember his resurrection. When I remember his death, I remember his love. When I remember his death, I remember purpose. And then pray. 
if we pray like this church, I believe the walls in this church will shake too. But you're not going to shake the walls praying for yourself, for things to get easier. The walls will shake in this place when we pray for God to empower us to walk with boldness, even if it costs us everything. It may cost us everything this world has. But they can't take my soul. Would you rather be rich and go to hell or live in poverty and spend an eternity with Jesus? Because Jesus told a story just like that. There was one man that had everything he could get. And he forgot where it come from. And he died and lifted his eyes in hell. But there was one poor man named Lazarus that the dogs would lick his sores. He lifted his eyes up in paradise. There are worse things than being poor. There's being lost. We're being fooled by the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we just pray today, Lord, that we will just, Lord, that we will just be the church. That we'll come back to these, these basic things, but they're so important. That your word will become important to us, that we'll devote ourselves to do it, devoted to learning it, devoted to living it. Not just the parts that are easy the parts that are difficult. That, Father, we'll devote ourselves to fellowship, realizing that we're better together and that we'll take our rightful places, that we'll live out the gifts that you've given us. You've gifted some to be teachers and some to be encouragers. And Lord, we know that we all work together to become this big body that's fitly joined together. So, Father, I pray that you help us, Lord, to fellowship in a way that reflects your church. To always be in remembrance by the breaking of bread. Remember the, the price that was paid for us. And, Father, I pray that you help us to learn how to truly pray with you as the center. Help us, Lord, to come into prayer with a keen understanding that your will is perfect and that what you won't change, you will take us through. That furnace was very hot that the Hebrew boys got thrown into, so hot that it killed the two guys, the first two guys to open the door. But Lord, we know that they came through on the other side of that furnace without so much as a the smell of smoke on their clothes. Lord, we know that you are able to carry your people. If we'll refuse to bow to anyone but you. Lord, remind the church that you are our Savior and we need no other. Lord, we pray that your blessings will be upon us. Not because we deserve them. <laughs> 
because we know you love us. Teach us these things, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. We'll be back in person next Sunday. Be here. I was a little longer today because you're sitting on your couch, most of you. I'll do better next week. Love you guys.